We have two readings this morning. It's uh, 1 Kings 8, starting at verse 54. When Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord, where he'd been kneeling with his hands spread out toward heaven. He stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice, saying, Praise be to the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he never leave us nor forsake us. May he turn our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep the commands, decrees and regulations he gave our fathers. And may these words of mine, which I prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's need, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. But your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord, 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple of the Lord. On that same day, the the king consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord. And there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the fellowship offerings, because the bronze altar before the Lord was too small to hold the burnt offerings and grain offerings and the fat of the fellowship offerings. So Solomon observed the festival at that time, and all Israel with him, a vast assembly, people from Lebohamath to the Wadi of Egypt. They celebrated it before the Lord our God for seven days and seven more, 14 14 days in all. On the following day, he sent the people away. They blessed the king, and they went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. When Solomon had finished building the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had achieved all he had decided to do, the Lord appeared to him a second time, as he'd appeared to him at Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I've heard the prayer and plea you've made before me. I have consecrated this temple which you've built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you... If you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, Then I will cut off Israel from the land I've given them and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. And though this temple is now imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and will scoff and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, because they've forsaken the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshipping and serving them. That's why the Lord brought all this disaster on them. Our second reading is from Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, that they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is God's word. Morning, everybody. My name is Matt. I'm one of the ministers here. It's lovely to see you this morning. Pray and ask for God's help as we get down to the serious business of hearing him speak. Heavenly Father, as, as every time we approach your word, it is, it is you who reads us. It is you who assesses and checks and corrects and encourages our thoughts and our hearts. It is not us who stand in judgment over you. Father, we pray that that would be abundantly true of all of us this morning. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in one king, so if you've closed that, open it up again. Now look, I don't know if you agree with this, but it seems to me that every so often in world history, uh, a leader appears who offers out that most precious of commodities, hope. Hope of change, hope of progress. Hope, hope if not of exactly heaven on earth, no one would be so crass or so bold, but certainly hope of a radical change in world order for the better. Can you, can you think with me of examples like that? I mean, I suppose the most obvious one of recent times is probably Barack Obama. You think uh, back to 2008. He, he, was, uh, he was elected on the, uh, on the ticket of, of hope for, for change, hope for progress, hope for prosperity. Now look, this isn't, uh, sorry Mike, this isn't uh, an advert for the Republicans, but uh, it is plain to see that, no, that not so much, not so much has changed. Uh, you know, uh, or you could think of more recently, uh, that, that bearded chap in a cap on a bike, the new leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, oh, I'm getting some cheers from the back there, but uh, I mean he's, he, he's an unlikely candidate for saviour of the world. I think. But yet, it does seem that, that a lot of people believe that he can bring about change that would be good for lots of people. Sorry, I did realise while preparing this that that's two left-wing negative examples. I'm not saying anything by that, alright? They're just the examples that came to mind. 
this morning. God is, God's not going to be urging us to some sort of monastic withdrawal from the reality, the political, uh, the economic, the social realities of the world. But, this morning, in, in case our allegiances were ever divided, and the reality is they will be because we're human, God this morning is going to impress upon us that if it is a better world that we're seeking, if it is lasting change that we hope for, there is only one leader who we should pledge our allegiance to. And God's going to do that as we look again at the life of Solomon. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we're working systematically through the book of 1 Kings. And we're going to see in Solomon this week a negative example. But we'll start with our first point. We join Israel celebrates the Lord's faithfulness to King David's son. That's our first point if you're taking notes. Uh, there's an ha- outline on the back of the notice sheet. Israel celebrates the Lord's faithfulness to King David's son. So if you, you remember, if you were here last week, that we've arrived at one of the high points of the book uh, of 1 Kings. Well, the books of 1 and 2 Kings, actually. Here is Solomon dedicating the temple. And the temple, we said, is wonderful. It's sort of, um, it's the place where God's presence dwells especially intensely with his people. It is the place that, that declares, that, that preaches by its very existence. Israel, Yahweh, your God, is for you. Israel, you are special to God. Israel, Yahweh, your God, is ready and willing to forgive your sins if you'll turn back to him. In a small way, it is it, the, the presence of the temple and God dwelling there is God kind of undoing what was lost in Eden. God's presence dwelling in the midst of his people. And at the start of this week's passage, verse 54, if you look down, page 346, we find Solomon on his knees with his hands out to God in adoring, heartfelt prayer. And the content of that prayer is everything that we looked at last week. But now, in this week's passage, Solomon rises from his knees and he turns from addressing God in prayer to addressing and to blessing the congregation. Have a look at verse 55. Solomon stood and blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice, saying, Praise be to the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. And in the first part of this blessing, just in case we were any doubt, it's not like the temple was just a kind of a novel idea that popped into the Lord's head in the reign of Solomon. The temple had been promised years and years and years ago. Its very existence now was an outworking of God's faithfulness to his promises. In particular, we'll see two promises in particular. Firstly, promises made through the prophet Moses. And secondly, promises made to King David, Solomon's dad. So have a look at uh, the end of verse 56. End of verse 56. Not one word has failed of all the good promises 
God gave through his servant Moses. Way, 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 way back when, in the book of Deuteronomy, God had promised that he was going to give rest and he was going to dwell with his people. And now that place where God's name dwells is a reality. Those promises had been made hundreds of years before Solomon. The promises to David had been made only a generation before Solomon. So Solomon says, verse 20, the Lord has kept his promises he made. So I don't mean, sorry, back in verse, back in verse 20. Uh, You have to flip back a few pages. So the temple is is God's faithfulness to Moses, but it's also God's faithfulness to the promises made to King David. Verse 20, the Lord has kept the promises he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have provided a place there for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of Egypt. So God has been faithful to King David. God has been faithful to the promises he made through Moses. And also, God is being faithful to his promise to bring blessing to the nation through Israel. It's easy to miss this, but back in our passage for today, verse 60. Verse 60. The overflow of God's blessing to Israel is, verse 60, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. So at the start of today's passage, we see uh, the writer's interpretation of the existence of the temple is that God is being faithful to his promises. And so what do you do if you're Solomon? If you're Israel, when you see God being faithful to his promises to dwell with you and be your God, will you party like it's 999, thereabouts? Verse 65. Verse 65. So Solomon observed the festival at that time and all Israel with him, a vast assembly, people from Lebo, Hamath, that was in the north, people from the Wadi of Egypt, that was in the south, the whole gang's here. They celebrated it before the Lord our God for seven days and for seven days more. Fourteen days in all. That is is one heck of a celebration. And over which time, I don't know if you noticed, so many sacrifices were offered. uh, Verse 64, that the bronze altar that had been built precisely for making sacrifices to the Lord, peace offerings, thank offerings, it was too small. So Solomon had to dedicate the temple. Uh, the um, courtyard in front of the temple, so vast were the number of sacrifices. I mean, just look at the figures, they're staggering. Verse, uh, verse 63, Solomon, and, and it says a bit later, it's not just Solomon doing the slicing and cutting, it's the whole of Israel. Verse 63, Solomon offered a sacrifice of fellowship offerings to the Lord, 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the Israelites dedicated the temple to the Lord. Having God dwell with you is so precious that it is worth sacrificing your best. I was just, I was trying to get an idea of of exactly how many sheep and goats and cattle that is. And I'm not an expert on animals, but let's, let's say a cow is two meters long. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah. Let's say a sheep is one meter long. Okay, so that means if you have, if you do the maths, that means uh, you have 
a line of cattle 44 kilometres long if you lined them up end to end. That is like a line of cattle stretching down the M3 to Guildford. Okay? But you get to the ends of the cattle and you look on for about another 80 kilometres down to Southampton and you see all the sheep and goats. You have to admit, it's somewhat different to how we would celebrate the end of a building project, isn't it? A little little less quiche, a little more blood and guts. But, But the point is, here is a nation offering the best of what it has in sacrifice to God because they realize that God dwelling with them is the best. Because they realize that here is God being faithful to his promises to bring about blessing. And then verse 66 rounds off this happy scene. On the following day, Solomon sent the people away. They blessed the king and then went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. Here we have it, Israel celebrating the Lord's faithfulness to King David's son. It is wonderful. If you were looking for a leader to pledge your allegiance to, to bring about blessing... Solomon would seem like a pretty good bet. Except. There is a foreboding chill in the air, even in that blessing. Have a look at verse 61. Solomon speaking to the congregation, but your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. That's a little less comforting, I would suggest. See, if these good times are contingent upon the people's obedience, well, I think there is something ominous about this happy scene like the distant rumble of thunder at a picnic. And if there's something ominous at the end of chapter 8, there certainly is in the first few verses of chapter 9. And that's our second point. Israel stands or falls with the obedience of King David's son. Israel stands or falls with the obedience of King David's son. Do you notice verse nine? Uh, sorry, chapter nine, verse two. The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time. Uh, the first time, if you remember, was when the Lord appeared to Solomon at Gibeon and said, "What? What would you most like?" And Solomon wonderfully said, "I would like wisdom to rule over the kingdom." Well, this this time, as we're going to see, the Lord is appearing to Solomon not to to ask what he wants, but to demand something of him. Before we get there, verse 3, the Lord begins by summarizing all that the Lord has graciously done, all that, all that we've just talked about. Uh, verse 3, have a look. <clears throat> I have heard the prayer and plea you have made before me, says the Lord. I have consecrated this temple which you have built by putting my name there forever. 
My eyes and my heart will always be there. That is wonderful. That is good. That is blessings. That is what God has done under Solomon. But then, verse 4. As for you, if, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I commanded, and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, when I said, you shall, excuse me, you shall never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. God's promise to King David that there will always be one of his ancestors ruling over Israel is contingent on Solomon's obedience and indeed the obedience of each subsequent king. Solomon, if you walk before me in integrity of heart and uprightness, it will go well with you. Solomon, if you do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, it will go well with you, just like your dad. It's a bit of pressure, isn't it? I don't know if any of us sort of struggle with living in our dad's shadow. Spare a thought for Solomon, if you do. I mean, what a, uh, what a thing to live up to. But actually, here, the Lord is saying something I think that sort of loads the pressure on Solomon even more. Solomon's obedience or disobedience will affect not just him, I don't know if you notice, but the entire nation. Uh, have a look, verse 6 of chapter 9. But if you or your sons turn away from me and do not observe the commands and decrees I have given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land I have given them and I will reject this temple I have consecrated for my name. Israel will then become a byword and an object of ridicule among the nations. That is to say, Solomon, all this that you've just celebrated, all this that is kind of worth a motorway's length of sacrifices, all this will amount to nothing if you abandon me, if you disobey my commands and go off and worship other gods. The temple will be raised to the ground. Solomon, if you obey me, your glorious reputation, your renown among the other nations, your wealth, your wisdom will continue. Solomon, if your heart goes after other gods, you and the nation you're king over will be made a laughing stock. Solomon, Israel stands or falls with your obedience. As you go, Solomon, so will go the nation. My gosh, I don't know whether you think you've got pressure in your jobs. Well, that's that's fairly high pressure, isn't it? If you muck up, the whole nation gets exiled. I mean, imagine if the fate of a nation, the fate of thousands, maybe millions of people, rested on how faithful you were with your quiet times or whether you use the gifts God had given you to serve God's kingdom and the church or to serve yourself. Oh, yeah, that might be a little bit problematic. Or whether you were sexually pure. There is an awful lot that hangs on Solomon's obedience. As the king goes, so goes the nation. 
As the king goes, so goes the nation. And I take it we don't think that that's a particularly arbitrary thing that God is teaching in this passage. As the king goes, so goes the nation. I mean, in some ways, it's just a general principle of the way the world works, isn't it? I mean, isn't it the case that just in everyday life, the man or woman at the top of the organization affects the culture of the whole, whether that's a company, a country, a school, a hospital, a church? I mean, think of the, you know, uh, diesel gates with the Volkswagen. You know, as soon as, as soon as the, uh, the, um, problem comes out, questions are asked, well, how, how could it possibly be that the ex-CEO, Martin, uh, Wintercorn, how could he have let this happen? Surely he is responsible for a company culture that allows this to happen. Go the allegations, allegedly. As the king goes, so goes the nation. And in microcosm, many of us, I guess, will be sobered by that reality. I mean, if uh, many of us here are, are elders at Christ Church Mayfair. Certainly many of us are in teaching positions, whether that's home group or Sunday school. How we lead, the example we set If we're elders, the kind of men we are in our private lives will affect the spiritual lives of others. If we're parents, or we hope one day to be parents, our spiritual lives will directly impact the spiritual lives of our families. The idolatry that we nurture in our hearts will almost, sadly, by osmosis, be passed on to our kids. The principle at the beginning of chapter 9 is, as the king goes, so goes the nation. And you've got to ask, I wonder what the first readers of the books of 1 and 2 Kings would have made of that principle, as the king goes, so goes the nation. Actually, for them, I'm pretty convinced, they wouldn't have needed much convincing about that. I see, they, they knew full well, the original hearers knew full well what was going to happen in Israel's history. As we're going to see in a few weeks' time, uh, Solomon tragically isn't going to be the kind of king who follows the Lord with his whole heart. And after Solomon's reign, the kingdom is going to be split in two. The northern kingdom, the kings there are going to be um, com- universally disobedient to the Lord. And that kingdom is going to get exiled by the Assyrians about 200 years after Solomon. The southern kingdom isn't going to be much better. The southern kingdom is going to be exiled by the Babylonians about 150 years after that because the kings do not do what the Lord commands in chapter 9. Their hearts are not obedient to him. They do follow after other gods. And you see, the first readers would have been reading this compilation of one and two kings in exile in Babylon. They already knew how the story panned out. And as they sat there in Babylon, looking around at each other, turfed out of the promised land, they were a living embodiment that God isn't bluffing here in chapter 9. God isn't bluffing. If the king's heart wanders, then the nation is exiled from God. And there, those people, as they, as they sat in Babylon, as they read here of Solomon's life, of 
uh, of a glorious celebration here, but knowing that the story ends badly, I wonder what they would have made of it all. Would they have been hopeful that there yet might have been a person who could obey God as king and so secure for them and the rest of the world God's blessing? Would they still be hopeful that there yet might be someone? Or had they, had they learnt the cold, hard truth from this passage? That if God's blessing is dependent on a ruler who obeys him wholeheartedly, then no Israelite king, no military man, no spiritual leader can do it. If the first readers of this were still holding out for a hero, had they learnt that one wasn't coming? I wonder if that's a lesson that we need to be reminded of as well. We'll discuss that under our third point, holding out for a hero. Uh, in preparing this, I did, I did actually, kind of just for fun, and go back and look on uh, YouTube of Barack Obama's uh, addresses before he, was, um, uh, before he was elected president. Uh, 2008, a town hall meeting, I think it was in New Hampshire, just before he went on the road. Yes, we can. Yes, we can to opportunity and prosperity. Yes, we can heal this nation. Yes, we can repair this world. Except that in context, the message of 1 Kings 9 is, no, you can't. Unless you can find someone who obeys God fully with their whole heart, and let's be honest, what are the chances of that? Which one of us could go even a week without wandering away from the Lord? Unless you can find someone who obeys God fully, true, lasting, glorious, fulfilling blessing for humanity will never come. And God will never allow it to be any other way. And if if we're people who are tempted to place our hopes for a better world in a ruler, a president, a CEO, a spiritual guide, then those hopes will be dashed. If we're, if maybe you're here and saying, I absolutely don't put my hopes in those people. I've seen far too many leaders come and go promising too much, delivering too little. If you're the sort of person who wants to put your hopes for a better world or for a better eternity in yourself, then again, your hopes will be dashed. And that leaves humanity in a desolate position. Until, until you fix your eyes and indeed your hopes on one of King Solomon's direct descendants. One of King Solomon's, or King David's sons, 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 sons. Born a millennia after him. One who was different. One who finally was different from every other person before him. One who knew from the beginning of his life that his obedience or disobedience wouldn't just affect whether the nation of Israel stayed or was kicked out of a patch of land in the Middle East. But one who knew that his obedience or disobedience would affect for eternity whether any single human being would ever step foot on the soil of the new earth that God will one day make. 
There is no hope for humanity unless we fix our eyes on a king who was born knowing that whether his heart strayed from the Lord wouldn't just affect whether God dwelt in a temple in Israel, but would affect whether humanity had any chance of escaping eternal separation from God in hell and would be able to come back home to God. Jesus. As you contemplate what was at stake with Jesus' obedience, I think you've, you've realized, don't you, not just, uh, not just the magnitude of what he did, but the wonder of what he did for us. Jesus never sinned. Jesus' heart never wandered off after other gods. Jesus never broke <clears throat> any of the Lord's commands. Have you, ever, have you ever praised him for that? See, if Jesus had sinned even once, he would have ceased. He would have ceased to be our perfect role model, yes. But far more significantly, if Jesus had sinned even once, he would have forfeited his role as our king because he would have no longer been able to rescue us. If Jesus had sinned even once, he could no longer have been the perfect sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. And here's the thing to remember. When we say Jesus didn't sin, we, we mean that in the sense that he didn't sin as someone who is fully human, who is exactly the same as us. Now, okay, you could say, well, Jesus didn't have a sinful nature. But when you actually start to unpack that, what do we actually mean by a sinful nature, Jesus not having one? Well, I think we kind of mean, well, Jesus had a nature that didn't sin at the end of the day. We have to remember, when we say Jesus didn't sin, he didn't sin as someone who is exactly the same as us. Jesus was tempted in exactly the same way that you and I are. That's what it says, Hebrews 4. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And you've got to remember, again, it wasn't a token temptation. Sometimes when you think of Jesus um, not sinning, he's able to sort of see temptation and go, ah-ha-ha, and just walk past it, brush it away, with the same ease that we might brush past someone handing out a free newspaper. Well, it isn't like that. Jesus faced the full weight and intensity of every temptation that you or I face. And actually, Jesus faced it with far more intensity because, I mean, you'll know in the battle with sin... What's, what's the easy option? Well, the easy option is to give in to that sin. It's actually exhausting to keep battling. But Jesus battled and battled and battled and battled through the pain barrier, as it were. He never gave in. He never yielded even an inch to sin for 33 years. And that, as, we, as Jefferson read from Luke, with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And that is with Satan turning the full force of his office against Jesus because Satan knew precisely that if he could get Jesus to sin even once, then any hope for humanity was lost forever. And yet for your sake and mine, Jesus resisted. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, prophesying about King Jesus and what he would accomplish. Isaiah put these words into Jesus' mouth. Therefore have I set my face like flint, 
and I know I will not be put to shame. I mean, what, what courage Jesus, Jesus showed. What resolve. What heroism in the face of constant pressure. And yet, for our sake, so that he could be the leader, the king, who could lead all who would trust and obey him into the promised land, into true, eternal, lasting blessing, Jesus resisted. You've got to love him and worship him for that. If it is left up to you or anyone else from this world to secure God's blessing, there is nothing but hopelessness. But we have a king whose hard-fought obedience means that we can be forgiven and enjoy eternal blessing with the Lord. When, when you pledge your allegiance to that king again today, won't you bow your knee to him if you never have? Let me pray. Oh God, Solomon's history, your words to him are sobering. And we are left realizing that the king we need to bring about sustained blessing is the king who loves you completely. And as we look at our own faltering lives and recognize that Jesus shared in our own faltering flesh, our own weaknesses, our own inadequacies as human beings, we marvel and wonder that he is the one, he is the king who obeyed you completely every single moment of his life, that he could be the one who secures for us eternal blessing. Father, we pray that you'll help us to be men and women whose allegiance to him is absolute and unwavering. Amen.